0: Coming at you from the Wee Desserts studio in Houston, Texas, you're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed.
1: Welcome to episode 54 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton, and I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton. And guys... The Olympics are here, Rio de Janeiro, the opening ceremony kicks off on Friday, Team USA Basketball, obviously gold medal favorites, US is probably the gold medal favorite in, uh, in overall competition, but with all of the controversy kind of surrounding the games, whether it's terrorism, whether it's are, are, are the facility is actually going to be complete, are you guys interested and excited about the games? Uh, I'm excited about the basketball as always I love watching international basketball
2: Whether it's FIBA, whether it's Olympics I mean, you name it um, I know the rest of the world takes the, uh, the, the FIBA competition A little more seriously than, uh, than the Olympics And that's sort of the Olympics is where we send all of our guys but We actually don't have all of our A-list guys there this year There's a number of uh, people who are not uh, attending uh, based on probably concerns about the Zika virus or concerns about security and so forth and so on. So it's an interesting team. Some younger guys, um, some guys that are obviously very, very talented, the best the world has to offer, but not the, uh, the absolute best, not the names necessarily that you'd expect to see. So I'll be there. Tomorrow they're going to be playing uh, Nigeria at Toyota Center, uh, which for our listeners will be today or in the past, so you guys already have the benefit of uh, experiencing that, but I'm excited about the contest for sure.
1: Yeah, it's going to be kind of cool to see the great athletes come here, and I, I expect that game's going to be lopsided. I don't think Nigeria's going to, you know, really give a, the U.S. A, a good test. But, Jeremy, 2016 Olympics, are you
3: looking forward to it? Uh, yeah, I, I really am. Um, I'm really looking forward to see how Michael Phelps performs. You know, we thought London might be his last Olympics, but here coming back uh, here for 2016 it was a little unexpected. Um, I'm really looking forward to how Team USA Swimming does also with uh, Ryan Lockney.
1: Yeah, so interesting that you mentioned uh, Michael Phelps and Ryan Lochte. We actually have an interview with Nicole Auerbach from USA Today here in just a minute, and she's covering uh, swimming, Team USA swimming specifically, and she's heading down to Rio on Tuesday. And uh, she provided some great insight, uh, especially for the younger athletes. Uh, So if you're looking for a name to follow, she recommends Katie Ledecky, and we'll get into that here in just a few minutes. But also with Team USA Basketball, Kevin had just mentioned, we have a great interview that Kevin did with Steve Karp, who works with the uh, Las Vegas Review-Journal, broke down Team USA Basketball, what we can expect, and also some, I I Relevant news with uh, Las Vegas and potentially the NCAA. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there with that. I
2: will say, first of all, uh, USA Swimming, I'm not a big swimming guy, um, but I actually did get a chance to talk to Camille Adams, who's part of the team USA Swimming, because uh, she's from my coverage area. I cover the Cypress um, you know, School District and what they do there. So uh, she was talking a little bit about the the concerns, and she says that her perspective has been that, yes, there are some legitimate dangers. She was in London as well. She, this is a more dangerous environment, perhaps, but uh, she feels like the USOC has done a really good job of uh, preparing all the athletes, of giving them the information they need, in order to be safe, giving them things like mosquito nets and supplies and so forth. And so she said that her uh, her fears are marginal. She's just going to be careful and, uh, and kind of take it one day at a time. But she's not too concerned. So uh, you know, taking it from her, I think that it sounds like they've done a good job preparing these kids and uh, these athletes and
1: uh, should not be... Uh a disaster. Yeah, it's worth noting that all of Team USA was actually in Houston this past week at the George R. Brown Convention Center in the Hilton Americas, uh, going through Team USA processing. So what basically that what, what that means is that the athletes go in, they get fitted for their opening ceremony, closing ceremony outfits, uh, they get all their Nike swag, uh, they go through media training, they go through different courses and uh, essentially learn about the risk in the town. So uh, it, it's very uh, kind of cool that all of those athletes process through the city, but uh, I, I guess that's due to their sponsorship with United, and uh, there are only four direct flights from the U.S. to Rio de Janeiro for the Olympic, oh, Rio de Janeiro, period, and uh, one of which is from Houston, so it was great to see all of those athletes here in Houston, actually, the pleasure of meeting uh, Olympic legends Michael Johnson and Jackie Joyner-Kersey on Wednesday night, uh, very, very cool to see, uh, the, you know, that much Olympic talent, I kind of felt... I don't want to say insecure, but just like, what have I done with my life? I mean, I host a podcast, which I think is, you know, obviously more important than gold medal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obviously.
3: Yeah. Okay. So may- maybe that just fell on deaf ears, but <laughs> yeah. I'd like to add, I, I was excited you-, you got to see Michael Johnson. I mean, really famous Baylor alum. And uh, really cool guy I hear on a personal level. So Yeah, he's uh, he's got
1: a great uh, performance center up in McKinney, Texas, actually retrains a lot of uh, NFL prospects, uh, NBA prospects, as well as uh, you know Olympic hopefuls. But uh, we've got great Olympic content on today's show. Again, we have uh, Nicole Auerbach from USA Today, Steve Karp from Las Vegas Review-Journal, and you know the Astros are in the midst of a pennant race right now. So we have uh, Jake Kaplan, you might remember from episode 42 of the podcast. He's the beat writer for the Houston Chronicle, covers the Houston Astros. Uh, he joins us on the phone from Detroit here in just a few minutes, so uh, we've got uh, some solid guests on today's show, but uh, you know today's show would just not be possible without our sponsor, We Desserts.
2: It'd be possible. We could do it without them, uh, which is not necessarily the right message to send, but it would not be as good. We would not have uh, this delightful studio, the We Desserts studio from which we are broadcasting. We would not have a lot of the resources we have, and we would not have a lot of the resources we have to get the word out to the people about the show. The show's grown so rapidly. Um, I feel popular for the first time in my life. People have never really liked me before. So this is, uh, I mean, it's just a truly amazing feeling. I wake up warm inside every morning, knowing that people are listening to the sound of my voice every week. Thousands of people. Um, so thank you, We Desserts, for that. That's OUI Desserts. It's at 3411 Kirby here in Houston. So if you have a bit of a sweet tooth um, or if you just like talking to wonderful people who make great products, drop by Wee Desserts. Uh, anybody who goes there gets 10% off if they say, and this is important, that they are a listener of the Weekly Brew Podcast. And we've had a lot of people in the past go through. Um, it seems to have tapered off a bit. So, uh, I blame you guys. Uh, it's not our fault, obviously. We're doing a great job of promoting them here on this show. So, it's really up to the listeners. Go out and enjoy uh, a dessert from we. Get the beignet bites. you had beignet bites before?
1: I have not. Well, well what I is have. wrong with you? I prefer their, uh, what is it, their, uh, hold on. It's the- so, it's a
2: French marron. Yeah it's no like no, no
1: I prefer their uh, the little cupcakes. Okay, the mini cupcakes. cupcakes. Sure, sure, sure.
2: I mean the the point is that there is something for everyone at we Desserts, and you guys have done a great job in the past of going there. So go there again, get 10% off of your order. Get a huge order in fact. You save more money that way if my math is correct.
1: And you get Huge snickerdoodles as well. I get snickerdoodles every day. Yeah, which is phenomenal. But Kevin, uh, I'm going to stop you real quick. So mm. we definitely want to recommend that you go to Wee Desserts. Mm-hmm. 3411 Kirby. You get 10 mm. off your order. But I just want to say that uh, you know once you get over your lack of confidence, you're going to be okay. Yeah. So yeah. That's, just... Well, that's what that's what I'm doing this podcast. For. It's really <laughs> helped me uh, interpersonally develop, uh, and I'm I'm proud of my progress. Well, we're proud of your progress too. Thanks. So, <laughs> in addition to Wee Desserts, we want to make sure that you also visit us on our social media platforms. Kevin alluded to us having a great following here the past few weeks, and we've uh, grown significantly especially on Facebook. So uh, you can search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and we post great content there. Also, you can check out our website, weeklybrewcast.com. We post each of the shows on there. So once they go live, you get the show rundown, exactly what you want to know, and it's pushed straight to your inbox, so I highly recommend checking that out. But
2: We're making the push. We are uh, very near uh, to 1,000 uh, likes, I think they're called, on Facebook, to our Facebook page, which is impressive. But it's it's, it's only about uh, a fourth or a fifth of the people that listen to the podcast on a weekly basis. So if you're listening to this, if you're hearing this, hearing my voice, my lovely melodious baritone, then go to Facebook, look up uh, the Weekly Brew podcast, and uh, give us a like on Facebook, because uh, i got to tell you, it, it's, a, it's a really exciting feeling to be that close to 1,000. It really seems like it means
1: something. Yeah, and we, we've done that because of great guests. And uh, obviously, on this week's show, we've got uh, Nicole Auerbach from USA Today, Steve Carr from Las Vegas Review Journal, both talking Team USA, whether it's swimming or basketball, and just the Rio games in general. And also, uh, a great interview with Jake Kaplan covering the Astros, uh, the recent call up of Alex Bregman, his struggles, and whatnot. So, we've got a fun episode on deck for you. We've also got uh, you know fun episodes and guests lined up here in the next few weeks. So, we're really excited about the month of August for everyone. But without further ado, it's time to sit back, relax and be informed.
3: You're listening to The Weekly Brew.
1: Joining us now on The Weekly Brew Podcast is Nicole Auerbach who is a national college basketball and college football reporter for USA Today and Nicole is also covering the Rio 2016 Olympic Games and uh, Nicole, the, the Rio Games start on Friday with the opening ceremony and to me it seems that there's been a lot of I don't know, controversy surrounding Rio, surrounding Brazil, whether it's the economic turmoil, whether it's the political turmoil, whether it's Zika, whether it's the, you know, threat of terrorism. I guess as you prepare uh, for covering the games for the next two weeks, what is your mindset heading into Rio? And are, are there any specific concerns that you have about, uh, you know, the 2016 version of the Olympics?
0: Well, so
4: I'll say um I went to London and that was my first Olympics and I kind of got thrown into it. Um, we had a restructuring and I got assigned swimming basically right before Olympic trials. Um, that was, if you remember before London, everyone's worried about security concerns and there had just been the um, subway bombings. Um, and I just remember that being the dominant thing, dominant thing. And then, you know, we kind of went through like security checks basically twice to get anywhere in any venue. Um, and it was fine. And uh, my coworkers went to Sochi and yeah, I mean, some of them didn't have doorknobs in their like hotel rooms, but like it ultimately worked out. Okay. So, I'm pretty optimistic that things are never as bad as they everyone talks about leading in. Um, that being said, like, I mean, I am taking certain precautions. Like we've had security calls. Honestly, my biggest concern is local crime. Um, and I think that that's the biggest like day to day concern for people down there. Um, and, and so I think, you know, like on the Zika front, I mean, I have tons of like mosquito repellent. Um, it is winter. There will probably (laughs) be less mosquitoes. Um, You know, and and you can't really do much about political instability or economic instability, um, but really just local crime. I mean, we were told not to wear jewelry, not to to bring or wear expensive things, um, use ATMs like in the main press center, different things like that. So I'm pretty confident, you know, as long as I do all of those things, that things will be be manageable, things will be fine. And I will say, like, you know, it's been kind of interesting in the lead up to watch A, a lot of golfers use zika as their excuse for not going right um because like that's not the real reason the real reason is the olympics don't matter for a golfer i mean like they have their major championships um and then you know i'm around swimmers where this is it like you train four years for this event so you're not gonna not go because of zika um and and i i would say that i feel the same way i mean i feel like you know on top of my college sports duties I have been covering swimming for the last four years, and I've been working towards this. And of course, I'm going to go, and of course, I'm going to be excited. Um, so I sort of have that same approach that, you know, it is a once-in-a-four-year thing that you work for, um, and you should be excited for. So I mean, you know, there's just ways to be cautious, but I think that hopefully, I'm pretty optimistic that, you know, things will be better than the worst case scenario.
1: I I guess surrounding the Games, there's a lot of storylines. I mean, we have the, uh, you know, the doping scandals, uh, you know, Russia, whether they should be in the Games should not be in the Games. I guess as you look uh, at the Rio 2016 Olympics from a macro level, what are the big storylines for you?
4: Yeah, I mean, obviously, so I follow, um, I will be swimming for the first eight days. And then I kind of bounce around. Um, So I've kind of been hyper focused on swimming, um, particularly American swimming. um, But obviously, like i understand the context of where they fit in in the world. Um, and I think what's going to be really interesting from a swimming standpoint, I think there's a, there's a bunch of storylines. Um, and Katie Ledecky is the big one. Um, I think she's been the world's most dominant swimmer for the last four years. Um, and people have told me you know, that even when Michael Phelps was at his peak, he wasn't this dominant because he didn't swim. Like, Katie can swim any distance um, freestyle. She did not make the Olympic team 100. But basically everything else, and, and every anytime she gets in the water, it's potentially a world record. Um, and I don't think that people realize that. I think that I've gotten questions from other sports writers, other sports fans' friends, being like, oh, so, like, Missy Franklin's the big deal again, right? And not just – like, Missy made the team. She'll be involved in a few events less than last time. But Katie is the big deal. Um, and I don't think people realize that. So I think there will be sort of a coming-out party for her. Um, I think she's the, the closest thing to a sure bet that Team USA has, I think that the relays are going to be shakier than usual. Um, The times at trials were not, there were no world records set. Um, There was, if you projected out, like what their times were in the world this year, um, there were less gold medals than I think American swimming fans are used to seeing. It was a lot more silver and bronze if they were medaling. So I think they need to get a lot faster um, between trials and now, which which will be a, a month total, of training camps. And, um, you know, the coaches are very confident that'll happen. But I think that people just assume that, you know, four years goes by like a blink and everyone's kind of at the same level. They were four years ago, but you know, we saw Ryan Locke, he's not, Missy Franklin's not, and they'll be swimming fewer events. Um, so there's just a lot going on as, as the swim team has gotten older. Um, there's a lot of big names like Natalie Coughlin didn't make the team. So there's a lot of college swimmers um, and people kind of swimming for the first time at the Olympics or like at this major international meet. So I think swimming could be really interesting. It could either, you know, everyone takes a huge step um, and everyone does really well, or there is less medals than we're used to seeing. Um, So from a swimming standpoint, I think that's part of it. Um, Obviously the doping issues have touched swimming and swimmers have talked about, but they're very confident in the way that the US Anti-Doping Agency tests and they were pretty adamant about, you know, a month ago at trials, that they don't think it's going to be an even playing field no matter what. Um, that when they go in the pool, it's not going to be, you know, 100% clean. And you know, one of the coaches was saying that you know you can always you can kind of always say that because if you're cheating, you're going to be one step of the head of the curve anyway. Right. Um, so there's going to be someone who figured out some way to do it. Um, so you know, I mean that's kind of where I'm at just cause I'm so swimming focused. Um, you know, my colleagues, Nancy Armour and Mary Chalakson have really been covering the whole Russian doping scandal and the response. And, um, obviously that they're really not banned and it was up to individual agencies to, you know, we decide who goes or who doesn't. Um, so that's obviously a huge deal would have been a bigger deal if they were kind of just banned as a blanket ban. Um, But yeah, I mean, so I don't know if that answers your question because it's very sport specific, but I'm sorry, (laughs) I'm sort of like in the zone in the swimming world right
3: now.
1: No, I hear you. And, and speaking of swimming, I mean, you had you you had kind of alluded to the fact that Team USA, you know, you've got some older athletes like Ryan Lochte, Michael Phelps that are kind of at the end of their career. But then you've got Katie Ledecky, who's young at her prime. It seems that when I look at USA Swimming, that there's kind of that old guard and that new guard mix right now. But also, as you had mentioned, the, the rest of the world seems to be catching up with Team USA. Uh, do we see that, you know, USA Swimming is, I don't know, kind of past its prime? Or are we just not familiar with kind of the new names that you know might take over the you know the games
4: it is interesting because the kind of the storyline at trials which is obviously where everyone qualifies for the team is was a new guard kind of displacing the old guard because yes you do have michael Phelps; he's actually a captain for the first time um at an olympics um you have him you have ryan lochte um and then and you have nathan adrian who now is a veteran he's four years younger than those guys but he'll count um and he's he's also one of the captains. He's he's a great guy and will be a really good leader for them. But there's really not the rest of their guard did not make the team. Tyler Clary, Matt Grievers, um, and like I said, Natalie Coghlan, that group: Colin Jones, they did not qualify. Um, and so there's there is a different feel to this team uh, versus you know last year's or four, sorry four years ago um, and the team before. But like I said, I think that it's good. You know, I mean, everyone sort of expects that there always will be a changing of the guard. Phelps, you know, insists this is his last Olympics. You know, you do need someone to to pass the torch to. And I think Katie Ledecky will be the face of American swimming for however long she wants to be. I mean, she, so she deferred to go to Stanford. She's 19. She'll go to Stanford in the fall. Um, And, you know, we'll see from there. Um, And she is so like technique wise she's so sound she's so like low maintenance low key like her personality is like very good to handle you know all the attention she's got um i mean i could see her doing this for for a long time um you know she's gone down from every level you know start at the mile and 800 and just has dominated every level she's swam and and she certainly wants to be part of the relays and she will be for the four by 200 but you could see in four years her wanting to do the the four by 100 and, and could see her just continue to kind of challenge herself. Um, so I think she will be the face of swimming. I think on the men's side, it's a little bit more muddled. There's a lot of really talented college swimmers. Um, I have a couple theories on how people become the face of their sport when it's an Olympic sport. And I think that one of the main things for men is the amount of events you swim. I think that it's always been Helpful from a casual fan standpoint, that Michael Phelps and Ryan Lochte swam, you know, four or five individual events, and they swam the 400 IM the first night of the Olympics, and you know, you were kind of you were just constantly seeing them in the pool. Um, and it's actually one of my theories why Nathan Adrian, who's a sprinter, he does the 50 and the 100 free, um, why he's not a bigger deal, I think, is because his events are at the end of the week and they're just two.
0: Right. Um, and
4: I think that right. that will be interesting to see on the men's side who emerges. Um, because I think that the almost the quantity matter. obviously quality matters. You, people like winners um, and people that are meddling and things like that. But I think that um, you have to, like right now I can think of like really good butterfly guys. I can think of like a really good breaststroker, but the amount and the versatility of the events that like Lockheed and Phelps have done, I'm not sure there's that one guy right now. So it might be a couple of people becoming kind of the next wave and then Maybe there's a phenom to come. You know, I don't know how that'll work. But the women's side, to me, is very clear that it is Katie Ledecky and everyone else.
1: Yeah, Katie Ledecky, she kind of burst onto the scene in 2012, you know, winning the uh, the 800-meter freestyle by four seconds, kind of shocking the world. But you had just mentioned Michael Phelps, and I believe it was uh, in 2015 you wrote a story kind of – Updating, I guess, on his career as he was coming out of retirement, and you know, he had the the DUI, uh, he had the the issues with marijuana, uh, but now he's a father, and it seems that it's almost, I don't know, a more mature, uh, a more focused Michael Phelps. Is that accurate?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's again, that's what it appears to be. Um, As you know, I mean, media, uh, you know, people are aware that we're media. People can act a certain way. Like, you know, I'm always of the camp, you know, when you see things like a Sandusky scandal or whatever scandals, you know, that you need to be aware all the time that what we see is not a hundred percent who these people are, but from by all accounts and by all the people around him, you know, Michael has matured. I mean, I think moving from Baltimore to Arizona was a really good step for him, getting him out of, um, you know, maybe the friends or people he was hanging out with there um, who may not have been the best influence. I think um, Nicole Johnson, his fiance has been a really um really good sort of like rock for him. Um, they've really enjoyed Arizona. Um, obviously they've had this baby, which certainly changes your priorities. And, and Michael's talking about how cool it was at trials. You know, he's aware that his son is only a couple months old and is not going to remember seeing his dad swim at this level, but they'll remember that he was there and they'll have videos and they'll have all of this. And he was able to be part of one Olympics. Um, so he definitely sounds like he has really – thought about perspective thought about the place of swimming his family relationships and all of these things in the last year and other swimmers have talked about that they've seen a difference in him in the last year too so you know I think that he's been able to he the way he phrased it he enjoys swimming more because it's more of a choice it's not a chore Um, and even in 2012 it was something he did not enjoy and I think that maybe that's you know, he had some really incredible times a year ago at Nationals, um, and I think that he is very – like, I think you'll see when he's on TV, like, he's as muscular as ever or whatever, but he's almost, like, slimmer. Like, he's – like, the he, – he looks – his physique is, is slightly different than even – and he, he was saying that – his Coach Bob, Bob Bowman were saying that, like, I don't think they've – they don't think he's been in that this good shape since the lead up to Beijing when he won eight gold medals. So, you know, he might be able to do some some pretty cool things, I think, at Rio, even at his age. Because I think he almost, you know, by cutting out alcohol, by cutting out, you know, bad influences or things around the periphery of his life, I think he's really been able to have a really solid, like, year plus, year and a half of training. Um, And like I said, I mean, when you're prioritizing different things, you really want to be, you know, do something special. Your son's there. I mean, I think that, you know, he could have some swims um, that... You know, I don't know if we're going to see a world record, but, you know, I think we're going to see some pretty cool stuff out of him because I think his his focus and his motivations are at a level that they were definitely not uh, in London.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'm Michael Phelps, the most decorated uh, Olympian, U.S. Olympian, and uh, it, it's probably going to be interesting to see what he can do in his last go-around. But, Nicole, uh, you know, you've know, you been a sports writer for, I guess, what, the last 10 years, and uh, your background is, I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of fun to look at your website and kind of see your story about how you got your start, and uh, you've been able to cover some great things. I mean, you're going to your second Olympic Games here. Uh, you covered uh, Andrew Wiggins. You were kind of embedded with him you know, at the NBA draft a few years ago. And what is, I guess, for those that aren't familiar with your journey, uh, how did you get your start in in sports journalism and, you know, kind of getting to where you are today at USA Today?
4: So, you know, it was sort of by accident. Um, I was very math and science oriented um, growing up and and through high school. And I really thought I would probably major in econ or business. Um, And I went to the University of Michigan, which did not have a journalism major or journalism school at all. Um, and very strong business school. So uh, I was talking to a friend that I had just met um, in my dorm during Welcome Week, um, and she was a year older, and I, we were talking about our dream jobs, and she was already pre-med, and she was talking about wanting to be a surgeon. Um, and I just you know, kind of threw out there, I you know my dream job would be to write for Sports Illustrated, you know, the magazine I've read cover to cover every week. Um, and she was like, oh, you know, my best friend works at the Michigan Daily. She works on the news side, but I can give you email this address of the sports editor. You know, and I had never really made that connection that these are real people who get to write about sports and talk to athletes and tell their stories. Um, to me, they were it just seemed like so far out, it was never even a, an option. Um, and so she did, and I followed up, and I went to my first ever college football game the next day or that weekend, and it was Michigan-App State. And that was my first Michigan game, first college football game. And uh, then I went to the student newspaper meeting the next day, And I watched, you know, we always assigned four people to college football, or, sorry, to Michigan football at the Michigan Daily. And those four writers basically just, like, ribbed up their preview section that they had on Mike Hart and Chad Henney and all these guys, the number five preseason team in the country, um, and just, like, completely tore it up and wrote this big thing about, you know, how did that happen? Like, what the heck? And I just thought it was really interesting. Um, I thought it was really fascinating to watch. Um, and then, like anything in college, you know, you make a couple friends and you keep going back to meetings. And um, I mean, it wasn't something I, I seriously thought I could see myself doing or was any good at until the summer after freshman year. I interned at the Trentonian in New Jersey, um, which is where I'm from. And, you know, I was covering drag racing. I was covering Little League baseball. I was covering um, the Yankees, Double A team. And, you know, it's all nights and weekends. And at that point, most of my friends from home were still – you know, waitressing or working at the mall. Like, no one really was doing internships just yet. And they would always text me, and they'd be like, oh, like, what are you up to? What are you up to? And I'd be like, yeah, I'm working until, like, one tonight. Like, I, I can't do anything. And I realized that, like, that stopped bothering me, that I was not that I was missing things, because what I was doing I enjoyed. Um, and I wasn't stuck at Like, I had had a job at a sports memorabilia store at the mall, um, you know, and you're counting down the hours. And, and I realized I wasn't doing that, and I enjoyed it, and I thought I was getting a lot better by doing it every day. Um, and honestly, just kind of went from there. I mean, I covered all the, the, the big sports at Michigan. I covered men's um, hockey and basketball, football, and freelance for, you know, some different people the Detroit Free Press, uh, the Wall Street Journal, ESPN, and SI. Uh, I interned Cape Cod Times, the best job in the world. You just cover, you know, the best college baseball players and right. go to the beach every day. It's amazing. <laughs> and then I. Interned at USA Today and I interned at the Boston Globe after I graduated. Um, then USA Today called me about a job, and, and my first job uh, there was as a digital producer, college basketball blogger. Um, and then my role was obviously involved from that into a reporting position, expanded into college football and Olympic swimming. And so, you know, it's kind of all gone from there. But um, it's probably a good thing I'm not doing anything math related because I've not taken <laughs> a math class since high school now, and basically have to use the calculator for basic computation. So um, it's just funny how that switches, you know, right brain, left brain. But uh, yeah, so that's kind of the nutshell.
1: Yeah, I'm the same way when it comes to math. Actually, all of us on the podcast struggle with math and you know simple math equations. But uh, you know, you had mentioned that uh, you know one of the things that you you know grew up doing was reading Sports Illustrated cover to cover. And in episode 24, we had Lindsay Chanel from uh, SI on the podcast. And uh, one of the things that she was telling us is you know kind of the challenges that she's faced, um, almost gaining I- acceptance, not necessarily from her peers, but in terms of athletes, in terms of respect, as you know, she's a, a female journalist. Have you encountered any, I-, I guess, bumps along the way? Whether it's you you know, as, a, as a journalist or, you know, kind of impacted, I guess, to your youth? Has that ever been a concern or issue?
4: Honestly, not nearly as much as um, I imagine like, our predecessors did, um, and I've talked to them. Um, you know, I, I consider Lisa Olson and Christine Brennan um, close friends, and, and which is such an honor. And they actually, you know, were in the trenches fighting for a lot of this, fighting for access. Um, you know, I have a story that in 2008, when I was covering the Trenton Thunder, They tried to not let me in their locker room, Um, you know, and that was a three-day thing. And my editor at the Trentonian called them and was like, you have to let her in. And they tried to play it off as, no, she's an intern. That's not, it wasn't a gender thing, but it obviously was a gender thing. Anyway, so that was a three-day thing. And then it was six. Um, And I mean, it was still in disbelief that in 2008, that was an issue. Um, But that was, that was resolved really quickly. And I know, you know, Lindsay and I have talked a lot about social media, social media has, has, You know, thrown a wrench into some of this stuff because I think the way I always describe it is when someone disagrees with you, if you voice any opinion on anything, I mean, even so-and-so should be a starting quarterback, um, people come at you with a gendered response, um, either something about your looks, something about um, slut-shaming, something like that, versus if a male colleague had written the exact same tweet, people will argue with them at the content of the tweet, not their gender. and so that's a frustrating thing and that's something that like certainly comes up whenever you tweet or talk about um sensitive issues like rape or sexual assault or domestic violence um and you tend to get even more violent responses so that's something that's really frustrating on more of a day-to-day basis um you know and you'd love to say like you have super thick skin but i mean these people are able to contact you directly um and and i think that that's something that takes a little while to get used to and you know honestly like i used to love twitter a lot more and i would not be on it probably if I wasn't in journalism um, it just makes too much sense to interact and just, you know, share your work directly to people. But um, that's something that like on a day-to-day basis bothers me. Um, but in terms of access, in terms of interactions, I think that there have been female reporters, um, females interviewing males about sports for so long now that like, for example, the college athletes, I've never had a problem. Everyone's been so respectful, so kind they've been interviewed by women since they've been playing sports. Um, And they've seen women interviewing athletes on TV since they started playing sports. So I think um, that has really helped. Um, But I mean, on a day-to-day basis, I'm also thinking about what I'm wearing, how I'm asking for sources for phone numbers, what time I'm texting them, different things like that that I don't think my male colleagues think about. Um, And these are things Lindsay and I talk about. It's really nice to have other women, in the sports world because we all think about the same things and go through the same things that it just sort of on a day-to-day basis makes our job a little bit we're thinking about a little bit more um and maybe handling a little bit more on social media than our male colleagues
1: are yeah social media is um i don't know it's a blessing and a curse at times it allows you to be interconnected with i guess the globalized society but it also uh you know the trolls just seem to come out but I, i guess you know kind of looking at one last question for you and USA Today, you know, great publication. Uh, you know, you guys put out great content, but one of the things that you also do is you realize that, I guess print, you can't just rely on print, it has to be digital content that you have to reach new avenues. And one of the things that you do at USA Today is podcast. How important is it, I guess, for you uh, to you have that journalistic ability on different mediums, whether it's podcasting, whether it's print, whether it's online or social media, how important is that for you to, I guess, have a diverse skill set in that regard?
4: Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely vital um, in this day and age. And we do also a lot of video work. um, And I just think that you can't fall behind on any of those. Um, I mean, I, I do Snapchat, and I run our. I've taken over our USA Today Snapchat. I just learned that you can't fall behind on any form of technology. I mean, there were a lot of writers who didn't think that the internet would stick, or that they shouldn't have to worry about posting things right away and only worry about print deadlines. And I think that people have learned that you need to be able to evolve, and you need to be like multidimensional. And so. I've tried to do as much as we can um, on that. I do. I contribute to our Olympic podcast, our college football one, and then I run our college basketball one. And I think that's been really helpful for me personally to be able to give analysis and opinions that I can't necessarily just write um, because, you know, I'm, I'm a reporter. I'm not a columnist. So maybe I can share, you know, my personal feelings a little bit stronger in a podcast. Um, so I think it's been pretty important in me developing more of my voice, um, which is something I did not think of when I first asked to do the podcast, that that, that, that that would be a side effect, that that would happen. But that's been really cool. The video work has been really helpful because I've also done some TV work with Big Ten Network the last two years as a college football analyst, and I've done spot stuff on different, you know, different TV shows. And it's really helpful for just getting more reps and getting comfortable. And I just think people need to be able to do a lot of different things um, so that you can make yourself, you know, invaluable. And that's kind of in an industry that's like constantly changing and shifting and and there's layoffs at different places. I think you just have to have that varied skill set. Um, but to your original point, you know, emphasizing podcasts, I think that's a particularly cool area because, you know, no one's quite figured out exactly how to monetize it. I mean, some people have sponsors on their podcasts, but Someone I was talking to, I think it was Jonah Carey, was talking about how, like, people have not figured out, like, just how lucrative podcasts should be. Um, and, and I think that that's interesting. I think people are really – it's so easy to download a podcast, you like, or auto-download it every week and then listen to it on a run or a car ride. And it's such an interesting medium because people use it and absorb it in so many different ways. Um that I think that it's only going to continue to grow and people will kind of figure that out. But like I said, for me personally, it's just been really cool to develop a voice and, and a place to, to give stronger opinions um, and to bring whoever I want on. And I think that, you know, I, I was able to get Jay Wright on a couple hours after winning the national championship. And that podcast was my most successful college basketball podcast because everyone wants to hear from the coach that won a national championship <laughs> three hours prior uh, the next morning. So you know, it's been, it's been really cool to kind of figure out what works, what doesn't, um, and just kind of continue to experiment on it because it's a little bit, it's kind of a more experimental platform right now um so it's cool to be able to do that
1: well nicole it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the weekly brew podcast this week and uh, we definitely thank you for taking your time out and joining us and for those that you know might not follow your work right now but you know have been captivated by the interview and want to follow you uh, or find out more information on uh, the rio 2016 olympics and team usa swimming what is the best way for them to connect with you online
4: as much as i just ranted about twitter uh, (laughs) um way um it's It's at Nicole Auerbach, N-I-C-O-L-E-A-U-E-R-B-A-C-H. And I promise I will be in a much better mood about Twitter and social media by the time the Olympics start.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we definitely appreciate you uh, taking the time out and joining us. And I guess uh, enjoy Rio de Janeiro.
4: All right. Thanks for
1: having me. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast as a return guest is uh, Jake Kaplan, who is a beat reporter for the Houston Chronicle. And if you'll recall, we had Jake on episode 42 of the podcast. And Jake, when we had you on uh, a few months ago, the Astros had just come out of the uh, tumultuous month of April in which they struggled out of the gate. And uh, since May 1st, the Astros have had uh, one of the best records in Major League Baseball. And I guess my question for you is looking at the Astros right now, obviously they're not as bad of a team as they were in April, but are they as good as the team that they've, you know, kind of shown to the public in the last few months?
5: Um, it's You know, as usual, it's probably somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, I think closer to the, the good version than the bad version for sure. Um, you know, I think they're this year with the roster they have, they're a borderline playoff team, if not a playoff team. Um, you know, they, they had played well. Uh, really from May 1st on, but especially since about May 23rd or 24th on. Uh, they hit a little bit of a, of a rough patch here against the Yankees this week. And then um, in their first game against the Tigers, they got uh, Colin McHugh got roughed up pretty good. So, um, you know, they have a stretch against the better teams. This will really tell, tell us what kind of team this is and if they have enough to uh, either, either overtake the Rangers, who, are, who as of Saturday are, are four games up, uh, or, or sneak into one of those two wild card spots.
2: So, Jake, we've uh, we've talked a lot about Alex Bregman. As a matter of fact, there may not be an episode going back, I don't know, eight or nine weeks where we haven't said Alex Bregman's name. Gets his major league debut, and then he is 0 for 12, or 0 for the major leagues, actually. Uh, but again, you know, I always hear from people that love baseball more than I do. Small sample size. Don't panic. It's just you know a phase or whatever. How worried should Astros fans be about Alex Bregman's struggles uh, at the major league level?
5: I really don't think they should be worried at all. Uh, it's 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 kind of weird, though, like the three biggest prospects they've had debut this year. Uh, I guess you could argue Colin Moran versus Tyler White, but um, Colin Moran is generally regarded as a better prospect than Tyler White, so we'll, we'll go with him. He started, I think, 0 for 13. Uh, A.J. Reid started 0 for 16, I think, and, and and Alex Bregman, as of Saturday, coming into Saturday night's game against Justin Verlander, is 0 for 13. So kind of weird how that's shaken out with all these, these young guys to come up. Um, but Alex bregmans he's a pretty advanced player. He played three years in the SEC. He tore up the Texas League uh, this year and 18 games of the Pacific Coast League, and, uh, you know, he, he's got such a good swing, uh, quick, short, compact swing with, with good bat speed. I think he'll be okay. Um, it's just a matter of getting that first hit probably, and then, um, you know, I'd expect him to contribute and then maybe work his way up to the two-hole uh, before
1: long. Now with Bregman, I think there was a lot of concern on where he would fit into the Astros from a defensive perspective. And, uh, you know, he's spent time at uh, third base and the DH so far up in the big leagues, but he's been remarkable at third base. You know, he's flashed a lot of leather uh, playing the hot corner, a position that he's not 100% familiar with. Now, do you see him staying at third base in the long run? I know that when he was playing with, with the Fresno Grizzlies, they, you know, kind of worked him out in the left field. Do you see him Moving to the outfield, staying at third base—where does he project with the Astros long term? This season,
5: long term or this season? Um, there's two different uh, questions, but for this season, I would say he'll move around. Um, you know, I think he would have probably already played left field by now if Luis Valbuena hadn't gotten hurt on Tuesday against the Yankees. Um, but once Valbuena got hurt, there, you know, that that kind of delays any urgency to put him in left field because he can play third base every day until either Valbuena comes back in a few weeks or, uh, Yulieski Gurriel joins the team. Uh, once, once Gurriel's here, I think Bregman will play more left field DH, um, you know, spell Correa and Altuve up the middle when they DH or or get the rare day off. Um, you know, Gurriel will probably DH some, and then Bregman will play third or Valbuena will play third or first. There's a lot of moving parts, um, But I expect Bregman to play third pretty regularly, if not every day, until either Val Belinda comes back or uh, Gurriel, towards the team.
2: So you talk about Gurriel, and I noticed you tweeted that Yuliaski uh, gurriels work visa was approved today, which I take it to be uh, good news for the Astros. But it's always, as a guy that doesn't follow baseball as closely as some of my co-hosts here, it's always amazing to me how the length of time between a guy's name gets mentioned, he's a prospect, somebody you're hearing about, and the time he actually comes up and plays in the major league. So what do you expect that process length to be like from Gurriel starting the work and then contributing at the major league level?
5: Um, well, he played his first game in the in the Gulf Coast League on Saturday, and I would expect him to play at least a couple more games in the Gulf Coast League before moving to Double A. Um, and there, that could be as many as ten day, ten games. I would say. Um, I, I'm kind of every indication I've gotten is mid August, um, which would probably be, you know, uh, around that Cardinal series or maybe a little after that, maybe a little before that, somewhere in that range in the middle of August. Um, But Gurriel's not really a prospect. You know, I'd be hesitant to call him a prospect. He's kind of, at least in terms of professional baseball, he's a proven commodity. Now we don't know what that means in terms of major league production, but he's played 15 professional seasons. Uh, He's 32 years old. Um, So he's a a major league ball player. It's just a matter of how good and how much his skills from, from Cuba uh translate to, to this level you know I, have, I can't say I've seen him play so it's hard for me to really know um once once we see him up here a little bit it'll be easier to tell um but uh you know every everyone I've talked to who has seen him play says he can really hit so um you know I think they'll they'll find a spot for him in the field and, and put him in the middle of the lineup uh, uh as a, like I said in middle of August uh through the rest of the season
1: now, the Astros, out uh, again, the trade deadline is July 31st, and uh, we're recording this episode on Saturday, and we don't expect the Astros to make any splashes during uh, the trade deadline. But my question for you is, the Astros in the past few years have made trades. They have made acquisitions, but this year they seem to be doing it, whether it's through the international signing of uh, Guriel or calling up prospects like Bregman. Do you think that's the right strategy for the Astros in terms of keeping those valuable prospects that might be in Corpus Christi and Fresno right now, rather than selling the farm for maybe a short-term rental?
5: Well, it's a product of a few different things. I mean, this is the best roster Jeff Leno has had at the at July thirtieth um, in any of his five seasons, and so there's less there are less glaring holes than there were in the past. That being said, I still think they could use a starting pitcher. Um, and personally, if it were me, I would I would uh, be willing to uh, part with some some uh, prospects to get one, but the the issue there is it's we don't know exactly what the price for these guys are the the, the prices the trades we've seen so far suggest um, prices are, are crazy high this year, uh, especially for these controllable pitchers who you have for several years. So um, without you know us knowing every trade proposal or or you know how much the Tampa Bay Rays want for Matt Moore or Jake Odorizzi or Chris Archer um it's hard to really know you know what we would do in those shoes um i'm sure they're you know uh thinking about all these different uh, possibilities i think when push comes to shove um they, they i don't see them making a significant move now that but that could very well change i mean all it takes is, is one phone call in this this time of year the deadline's not till monday at 3 p.m so uh as we speak we've we've got about 48 hours um, to to get there, and a lot can happen in that time.
2: You know, I think it's interesting you talk about Altuve uh, a few minutes ago. You have the New York Times Tyler Kepner kind of wrote an article about what an Iron Man he's been. In addition to obviously his hitting proficiency, which is uh, you know astronomical, no question about that. But he's got a lot of skills and a lot of uh, endurance, and he's able to stay in the lineup. And they're kind of touting him as maybe being an MVP candidate. The Astros first since Bagwell. What do you think the odds of that happening are?
5: Um, it's a little early for me to hand out MVP candidates. I mean, I'll, I'll, in my stories, I'll, I'll call him uh I, i'll describe him as having an mvp caliber season but uh we're still not even into august yet uh, the mvp is not giving out a whole lot november so um you know right now i would still give it to mike trout I and mean, he's he's i think you could give it to mike trout every year he's in the in major leagues um <laughs> and and not go wrong uh i think the only reason he hasn't gotten it is because of of mike trout fatigue maybe people know that he could get it every year but um, Altuve is right up there with with Trout, uh, Machado, Donaldson in terms of production this year. Um, you know, Trout probably gets a little bit of upper hand because of the the premium center field position and his defense. Not that Altuve is a bad defender; he's a very good defender. But um, second base isn't viewed as as premium as center field in in those kind of discussions. But no, there's no doubt Jose Altuve is having an incredible season. I don't think anyone saw 18 home runs by the end of July happening um you know he's he's having one of the best road seasons in in baseball history by batting average which is uh pretty incredible he's i think he's in the 420s now so um yeah i mean he's he's going to he's going to be a key cog he was a key cog the last three or four years but he's going to continue to be that uh in, in the future and and through the rest of this year uh hitting in front of Correa and um you know once they get they get Bregman and Gurriel going it it'll just make their whole lineup uh, that much better
1: i think Sean Pendergast wrote an article this past week for the Houston Press uh, highlighting h- how Jose Altuve has just continued to develop and you know essentially when he was called up a few years ago he was almost like a stopgap and uh, you know that was essentially a triple a club at best but he was the one guy that actually showed uh, some some brightness i guess and he's continued to develop year in and year out how high is his ceiling? I mean, can he be, uh, you know, the next Craig Biggio for the Astros?
5: Sure. I mean, he's on a pace to, to be better than him, isn't he, if you look at all the numbers? Um, um, but, I mean, he – it's hard to project his ceiling because I think he's already exceeded the ceiling by far that people set for him a couple of years ago, maybe even coming into this year. So um, he's really refined the pitches he's swinging at um, because – know he's always been able to – he's one of the best – uh, in baseball, hitting bad pitches. So uh, once he kind of figured out that if he refines the pitch selection a little bit, he'll be that much better. Um, I think that kind of was a, a turning point. Um, and you know you see that he's and he's also flashing the opposite opposite field power. I don't know if he had maybe he had one or two opposite field home runs in his career coming into this year, and he's had a bunch of them, probably six or seven this season. So uh, he's a strong he's he's small, but he's a strong guy, and uh, he's really shown it this season.
1: Yeah, it's amazing to see that he's just five foot six at best, and uh, you know the the kind of career that he's been able to put together so far. But when I look at uh, you know future Astros, we definitely look at the farm system. Of course, there's a lot of talent in Corpus Christi, a lot of talent in Fresno, and uh, you know the Astros are going to expand the roster as we come up to September one. And one of the guys that I look at is James Hoyt, who is playing with the Fresno Grizzlies right now. Uh, he's got a microscopic one point six five ERA. Uh, he's averaging uh, four point eight eight strikeouts to his walk ratio. He's got uh, something like eighty three strikeouts over forty nine innings 28 saves is he guy that can help this team whether it's in August or September and and potentially be an impact player as the Astros make the push for the postseason
5: it's possible I mean he he's he's never pitched in the major league, so until he's he's up uh at the major league level and and you know throwing strikes and, and pitching well uh like he is down in, in Fresno uh, you don't really know for sure but I think he's a lot to be on the Astros in September Uh, They would like to. I think they would like to get him up sooner, as soon as possible. But they just has their their bullpen's been good enough to the point where they haven't really had a spot for him. Um, So I would expect him to to be here in September for sure. And then if he pitches better than uh, someone else, he could overtake that spot and be included on the playoff roster. Um, But you know, he's he's 29. He's he's put up these crazy numbers in AAA, especially with the strikeouts per inning, as you mentioned. and uh, obviously, it's, it's exciting for the fans to see guy put up those numbers. Um, but we'll see how he does when he gets up here. And, uh, you know, that, could, that will obviously dictate whether he has an impact on their if they make the postseason on their postseason roster or not. We've
1: seen guys this year like uh, Tyler White and uh, Preston Tucker kind of bounce up and down between Fresno and Houston. Are there other guys in the farm system right now that you can see make an impact on this year's Astros club?
5: I could see Tony Kemp coming back at some point. Um, well, he'll be back in September for sure. But, you know, you know, being another guy who, if he plays well down the stretch uh, he, and they do make the playoffs, he could be one of those valuable late-inning pinch runner guys like, like Dyson for the Royals in past years and, um, you know, guys like that who are valuable in a playoff roster. So I could see, I could see Tony Kemp being that guy. Um, other than that, I mean, I think Joe Musgrove will be up in September whether that's in a starting role or out of the bullpen to start, Um, whether he, you know, overtakes someone in the rotation. I think that might be a stretch for this season. But um, ultimately, I mean, the guys they have here plus Gurriel is going to be uh, the bulk of, of what they use to make their, their push at the end of the season.
2: I think if you look at a macro level, there's probably no question the Astros are uh, the best sports team in Houston, at least relative to the other two major sports teams. Uh, but it doesn't seem to have the same following. Obviously, that Texans do. Uh, you know, football is king here in Texas. And even the Rockets get uh, a little more presser, a little more attention, I think. Uh, but I remember back to the 2005 World Series, and this town did seem to be on fire for baseball for a brief time. Uh, is there anything the Astros can do uh, to, to bring that back?
5: uh win games I think is, is how you do that um you know I wasn't here last year but I I do know that when I was my first home game covering uh the Astros at Minute Maid Park this year was the home opener obviously and, and that place was pretty electric and I was I was impressed and then it kind of dipped off uh, the the day after uh and since but uh I mean when when a team's winning uh fans are going to show up more that's that's every city um But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's all I think they can really do. And and they have a chance to do that. They have a really good team. So, um, you know, if they make the playoffs, I'd expect it to to get a lot of attention as it did last year Um, and maybe down the stretch even before that. And and I think they have gotten more attention recently with with the call-up of Bregman and um, just their overall improved play in the last couple months. But um, I know football is king in in Texas. Uh, And the Texans are going to be pretty good this year as long as uh, DeAndre Hopkins – (laughs) you yeah. it goes
2: <laughs> up. So Jake Dolores said uh, last time you were on that you were a little disappointed. We didn't ask you about the current political landscape. I take it you have some opinions on that, but uh, to keep it relevant to sports, let's say the Astros are uh, a political team here. Which candidate are they and why?
5: Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, we're we talking uh, this year's candidates only.
2: We've covered all of them too in the convention. From before that, you can go back uh, to as far in this political cycle if you want to, or, or heck, if you have a good comparison, you can go all the way back uh, as far as you want. George Washington, if you like.
5: Uh, I don't know, honestly. I uh, off the top of my head. There's so many names to cycle through. What do you What do you guys think?
1: What do you think, Austin? Gosh, way to throw it on me. <laughs> Gosh. Gotcha. I don't. I don't know. I, I would think it would be somebody who's a tumultuous candidate. I mean, I, mean I, I almost think that you can throw in Donald Trump. I mean, just when you count him out, they, you know, just the a lot of people wrote Donald Trump off last year. Uh, you know, when he announced his candidacy, uh, and then he, you know, beat expectations, came back to earth, beat expectations, and that to me that's a little bit like the Astros. I mean, a lot of people wrote them off after that tough start in April, uh, but you know they they came back and you know made that strong push, and then they uh, you know kind of have come back to earth here the last few weeks, but. I don't know. I, I don't think they're as divisive as Donald Trump. but
5: They don't get as much uh, national media attention either. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a really tough question. Let me think on that.
1: All right.
2: <laughs> but way to, way to execute. Grace under pressure there, Austin. I'm, I'm proud of the way you filled that question after I
1: tossed it to you. <laughs> no pressure, no diamonds, right, guys? But, uh, so, okay, if we can not compare the Astros to uh, a presidential candidates, what is the outlook for the Astros as we kind of get down to the stretch of uh, games here in August and September?
5: Yeah, it's going to be really interesting, I think. Um, you know, I think their offense is set. I think this is what their offense is going to be. Whether they make a trade before Monday's 3 p.m. deadline, um, after that point we'll be able to assess what exactly their pitching looks like. Uh, but say they don't make a trade, which, which I don't really expect them to make a significant one at this point. Uh, again, that can change. Um, but, you know, I, the rotation is going to be a big thing to watch. I mean, um, Lance McCullers has really emerged as, as like an ace potential guy. Dallas Keuchel's come back and turned the season around, but, um, you know, and Colin McHugh has been good for the most part since Yankee stadium on the second day of the season until Friday in Detroit. Um, you know, whether he can, he can bounce back, how he bounces back off of that will be key. Um, you know, Doug Pfister has been really good for most of the year, but he had about his worst start of the season, uh, in his last start against the Yankees. Um, you know, Mike fires has been inconsistent all year. So, the starting pitching will be key. Um, you know, how that shakes out could determine how far they go. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it'll be exciting. I mean, especially once Bregman gets going and Gurriel gets here. Um, you know, uh, the continued play of Altuve Correa and Springer. Um, you know, they've still got nine games against the Rangers, so, uh, and, and some against the Mariners who aren't that far behind them. So um, it should be a really interesting, uh, you know, final couple months here.
1: One more question before we let you go. You just mentioned Lance McCullers and since 2000 McCullers and you, Darvish are the only AL pitchers with 6 plus double digit strikeouts in their first 32 six and their first 35 career appearances and uh, McCullers has allowed three runs or less in all 19 career home starts. His ERA uh, you know leads the AL, his home ERA leads, ER, or leads the American League this season. How good of a guy can he be? I mean, he's only 22 years old. I mean, what does that say for the you know his curveball, which has just almost been unhittable, striking out Mike Trout three times to having back-to-back solid performances. I mean, how good can he be long-term for the Astros? And what does that say about having him as part of that youth movement that seems to be performing well under pressure?
5: Yeah, he can be really, really good, I think. Um, you know He's doing this with mostly fastball, curveball, and until two starts ago, it was mostly curveball, curveball. Um, He's really started to control his fastball better, and I think that's been the big difference in – in the last couple starts when he's been especially dominant um, you know if he develops his change up more if he you know um, develops his fastball control more which he, he should over time I mean he can be an ace I think um, now is he how he does that uh, how long it takes him to do that what whether he does that how good he develops those pitches remains to be seen obviously but um, you know he's he that curveballs as good as any pitchers in baseball any starting pitchers in baseball many maybe any as good as any breaking ball in, in baseball starter or reliever um, you know he's gotten I think 85 or 84 his 100 strikeouts on the pitch which is crazy and uh, it's kind of like a couple different renditions of it. it you know there's like an 82 mile an hour one and 86 mile an hour one you can kind of play with it a little bit so um, like you mentioned the Mike Trout he struck him out three times on the pitch that's that's all you really need to see to, to see a guy's potential and how good he can be.
2: Well, Jake, it has been an absolute delight, uh, as it always has been. And I don't know if you know this, you are one of only five return guests on the podcast. So you're part of the family here. You are our guy. I'm and, honored. And we certainly encourage – yeah, well, I was going to say you should be. I didn't want to say that myself. I'm glad you said it first. But uh, we certainly encourage our listeners to go seek you out and to follow your coverage of the Astros. And uh, in order for them to do that, how can they reach out to you?
5: Uh, I'm on Twitter, as everyone is these days, at, at uh, Jake M Kaplan and uh, you can read the Houston Chronicle newspapers, it's still around you can, you can read them
2: well we uh, encourage that as well I don't know, I, I haven't announced this yet but uh, HCN, my company was acquired by the Chronicle I am, in, I am technically employed by the Chronicle now so definitely go read the Chronicle and all of the uh, community products they put out as well but Jake, it's been a pleasure and we wish you well man
5: Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate
2: it. You're listening
3: to The Weekly Brew.
2: Joining us now on The Weekly Brew, we have Steve Carp, a sports reporter with the Las Vegas Review-Journal who covers golf, boxing, the NHL, and all the various sports goings on during the summers in Vegas and is a five-time Nevada Sports Writer of the Year. And he joins us now uh, to talk about a little bit about Team USA basketball. So, Steve, we're going to see Team USA ourselves here uh, August 1st against Nigeria. Uh, some of the bigger stars opted out this year, but I would say the U.S. is still the overwhelming favorite for gold. Uh, what can Houstonians expect when uh, Team USA rolls into town Monday?
0: Still a very talented team, even without LeBron James, Steph Curry, and Kawhi Leonard, and uh, and Russell Westbrook. It's a, it's a different team. It's, uh, it's got some size, which it hasn't had probably since Beijing, but they have Chris Posh and Dwight Howard. They have legitimate close presences in, uh, in Cousins and, and DeAndre Jordan, and they're very uh, versatile, as they always are. A lot of flexibility. He's over a lot of different lineups. If he's uh, so chooses to match up with a certain team or if somebody's trying to defend him a certain way, he has an answer.
2: There are a lot of storylines, obviously, when it's the, you know, that collection of stars and uh, transcendent talents are going to have a lot of storylines. But I'm most fascinated with Demarcus Cousins because he's a guy who I perceive as being maybe one of the most talented big men in the league, if not the most talented, but just hadn't seemed to really find a groove with the mess that's going on in Sacramento there. Uh, is this a good uh, forum for him to sort of uh, broadcast his talents in a, in a less messed up situation and show the world what he can do in a basketball sense? And do you think he'll be successful at the international level?
0: He will be successful because he's on a team where they're not going to put up with his nonsense. And also, his nonsense doesn't come into play here because he's in a supportive role, not being asked to carry an entire bad team. This is a really good team. So it's very easy to conform to the rules and and fit in. And he has done a great job of that. He spent a month in Vegas before the Vegas training camp getting himself in shape. And ready to play, so he uh, he definitely is committed to the national team of winning a gold medal. The question is, what happens after the Olympics? He goes back to Sacramento. How are he and Dave Yeager going to get along? How are he and his rookie teammates going to coexist? That's the big question in Sacramento. They're going to open up a new arena. They're trying to get the culture changed. It's been a mess since he's been there. To me, that's bigger issue for him going forward because it's easy to fit in with, you know, play with Durant and Klay Thompson and, and Kyrie Irving. It's a little different when it's uh, Macklemore and guys like that. So,
2: we'll see. So how are the uh, Golden State Warriors guys meshing just in terms of the practices you've seen? I think you saw him play one exhibition against Argentina. You got Durant, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green. Do they seem to be building some on-court chemistry using this uh, Team USA experience?
0: I think so. Obviously, Golden State's going to play a little different. Uh, under Steve Kerr than the national team does under Mike Krzyzewski, but it's still basketball, and you still have to communicate and talk, and I think Clay Thompson's comfortable sharing the ball with Durant, and, and certainly Draymond Green, who has a friendship already with Durant, is certainly comfortable being on the floor with him. So I, I don't see any problems. I think he's going to enjoy the atmosphere in Oakland. I think Durant's going to flourish with uh, a group of guys where he knows he doesn't have to be the guy every single night, but on the nights when he has to deliver, he's capable of doing it. So uh, I think he made a good choice. Remember, it's uh, it's basically a one-year deal, the second an opt-out. So uh, if it turns that he doesn't like it, he can always uh, find another greener pasture, if you will. But I think he's going to be very happy playing in the Bay Area. They have great fans. Uh, the team, obviously, is is tremendous, and uh, I, I think he did the right thing for his career.
2: So you got Mike Krzyzewski, as we said, on his way out. This is his last uh, Olympics, last go-around with the Olympic team here. And you got Greg Popovich taking over. As I understand, they've been communicating a lot during this process, and they have a good relationship. But uh, what, what do you think changes, if anything, with Krzyzewski on the way out and Popovich coming in? Well,
0: for starters, I'm sure the media availability will be very different under Pop than it was under Coach K. Uh, pop is pop, and I wouldn't see him changing. Uh, for the most part, the people who cover the national team or the Olympic team are the same people who cover the NBA on a regular basis. They already have a relationship with Greg Popovich. Uh, some of the foreign media who, who tend to come around Team USA during an Olympiad, they obviously will find it's a little different situation than it was under Mike. But uh, I think you'll see, uh, you'll see the same kind of intensity with uh, Pop in charge. I think they might be a little more defensively inclined than they were under Coach K, uh, where they're always attacking and looking to shoot and having a lot of offensive freedom. I think you'll see that to an extent, but it will definitely, uh, definitely be a change. And every coach has his own philosophy. And Pop will will certainly put his stamp on the team going forward to Japan in 2020. But uh, it was a good choice. He certainly deserves the opportunity to uh, be the national team coach. He's the Hall of Famer, obviously, and uh, he knows what he's doing. So I think uh, USA Basketball is not going to miss a beat going from Coach K to, to
2: Pop. So I guess this may have been during the Argentina exhibition you spoke to uh, NCAA Vice President of Men's Basketball, uh, Dan Gavitt, and uh, there was some discussion about maybe uh, at some point in the future it might be possible for Vegas to actually hold uh, some of the championship-level NCAA events, say like the Final Four or the the final game or uh, or what have you. I mean, do you sense some movement on that issue? Might we see NCAA championships in Vegas in the next five, ten years?
0: Yeah, and thanks for following me on Twitter and reading my tweets uh, because that's where all that stemmed from. Yeah, I I think Dan is of a progressive uh, mindset that Vegas is a place where the NCAA should be doing business, given that a lot of its membership already does. We have four basketball postseason tournaments in town as it is. Uh, Yesterday, they just announced a, a hockey game in Vegas for October of 2018 between North Dakota. And Minnesota, and while that may not sound like a big deal to a lot of people, these are two of the most storied franchises in college hockey. The rivalry is off the charts. The fans hate each other. It, it will sell out very quickly. And, and what this does is maybe lead to a precursor. If they were to change the rule and allow the NCAA to put championship events in Vegas to have the Frozen Four come the T-Mobile Arena, which is the home of the new NHL team, as well as possibly a women's final four, a men's regional. See, we have the infrastructure to do it. We have an airport that, that takes flights in from all over the country, all over the world. We have, God, I don't know how many hotel rooms now. Yeah, We have tons of hotel space at every uh, price range you can imagine. It's easy to get around. It, it just makes so much sense. And, and look, gambling is part of our culture, and the NCAA's got to realize that. And Vegas has been a friend of the NCA when it comes to gambling for years. The people who run the sports books here monitor the lines very closely, and if they ever see anything that looks out of whack, they immediately contact the NCA and the FBI. Uh, if you remember, the headache Smith-Arizona State scandal years ago uh, was discovered right here in Vegas. These kids were trying to make huge bets on Washington State, and the, the money was uh, was odd, and they caught it, and uh, took the game off the board. Sure enough, uh, Arizona State was shaving points, so uh, the books have been a friend of Vegas for a long time. I mean, the books have been a friend of the NCAA for a long
2: time. Well, that is, that is fascinating. Certainly, I don't know that there's always been like a historical feeling of alliance there, but it just it feels like things are moving on. There's sort of a progression towards where Vegas is. Uh, like Even Adam Silver in the NBA has talked about gambling being legalized and things like that, things you would not have heard uh, a few years ago. Well, do you think that this is the first step of many, just in terms of opening Vegas up to other uh, major sports leagues expanding into uh, that city?
0: I do. I do, because uh, as the town continues to grow and we become a larger media market, Other leagues are going to look at it as a possibility to put a successful franchise in the city. Uh, Obviously, the NBA makes the most sense because uh, the arena's already there. Vegas and the NBA do business on an annual basis with the Summer League as well as the Lakers. And and the Clippers were playing uh, preseason here for a while, as well as USA Basketball trading here annually. So we have a great relationship with the NBA. They're just not ready to expand right now. And if they were to relocate a team, I'm not so sure if Vegas would get the first dibs. I think Seattle would probably be at the top of the list, assuming they ever get an arena that's suitable for the league, which is why they left in the first place. But uh, football, obviously, with the Raiders situation and, and the stadium situation here, uh, they're trying to decide where uh, best to put the stadium and then how to pay for it. And if they can figure those teams things out in the next few months, uh, we could see a commitment from Mark Davis to uh, move his team from Oakland to Vegas. And wouldn't that be something? Who would have ever thought that's possible? So, and then even baseball. Bob Banford has said that Vegas is a market that baseball needs to look at down the road. Obviously, you need a ballpark like uh you guys have in Houston with Minute Bay Park because of the weather. I mean it was like hundred and fifteen yesterday here. It's hard to ask people to sit outside and watch a ball game in late July when the weather's that that hot. It just can't be done. So uh maybe uh whoever decides to try to put a baseball team in Vegas will talk to the people at the Astros about Minute Maid Park and try to uh to get a uh, a sense of what it takes to get a ballpark built.
2: Well, Steve, it has been an absolute delight. And i got to say, I think you're a terrific follow on Twitter, and uh, you definitely have your finger on the pulse of everything that's going on in Vegas and in the larger world of sports. So for any of the listeners who heard this and want to uh, follow your work, how can they find you uh, on Twitter and online?
0: Pretty easy. uh... Subscribe writersreviewjournal dot com and my Twitter handle is Steve Carp J. So I'm pretty easy to find.
2: Well, we certainly encourage all the listeners to go and
1: find you, Steve. It's been an absolute delight, man. I thank you so much.
0: Anytime, you guys. Thanks for having me on with you.
1: Closing time. Again, this has been episode fifty-four of the Weekly Brew Podcast, and we just had a, a phenomenal trio of guests. Uh, thanks to Nicole Auerbach from USA Today, Jake Kaplan from the Houston Chronicle, and Steve Carp, who's a five-time Nevada Sports Writer of the Year. For the Las Vegas Review-Journal, so a uh, great guest, and uh, it was definitely uh, interesting to talk with uh, Nicole, kind of hear her story, uh, you know, what she's expecting for the games, kind of previewing Team USA Swimming, but also how she got her start in journalism, and also kind of uh, the impact that uh, social media has played in her career, and then also podcasting, and be able to kind of broadcast her opinions on multiple mediums, and uh, Jake Kaplan, great as always. Always. And I alluded to this in the Kaplan interview, but uh, I thought I'd
2: make a formal announcement. Uh, My company, HCN, uh, has been acquired by Hearst Corporation, which also owns a portion of, what, ESPN, uh, what was it? Vice. Vice, yeah. Several
1: networks. I think they they own portions of 300 different businesses.
2: Hearst is a big deal. And to show you how big of a deal they are, if you go watch Deadwood, uh, George Hearst actually is uh, one of the wealthy people in that show, Deadwood, which is from, uh, what, 180, 200 years ago, something like that. So, I mean, obviously that money's been around for a long time, the Hearst Corporation is a huge deal and it's nice to be owned uh, by a large organization with resources like that but I just want to tell people that I am more of a big deal now than I was before Uh, because I now work for a larger institution you know Chronicle has been a dream job of mine for a long time I technically am employed uh, by the organization that owns the Chronicle so if you thought that I wasn't a big deal before you were right Uh, but I am now totally you tell us every episode yeah this time I'm not lying though. this time it's for real welcome to the club I guess thank (laughs) thank you it's uh, it's a really great feeling so no but it is really exciting I think that uh, the resources they have to offer will be great. I've had to, I've had to tiptoe uh, the line a little bit, having a lot of Chronicle guests on the podcast and working for what was ostensibly a competing organization, or at least they claim so. So it's really nice to be part of that family. I've always been a huge fan of the Chronicle, and uh, that's why we have so many of their writers, sports journalists, and so forth on here, and uh, and we love working with the Chronicle. So I now
1: uh, work for them, and I, I'm loving that feeling too. So, Kevin, obviously the best way to celebrate you know, your, I guess, promotion to the Houston Chronicle. So I, I wouldn't to... call it a promotion. They I don't say. call it a promotion. I asked them, and they said it's not a promotion. Okay, so your lateral move? Yeah, sure. Whatever. Okay. okay. The best way to promote your, I guess, to, the best way to celebrate your lateral move to the U.S. Chronicle, uh, you know, would be to go to We Desserts, right?
2: Oh, of course. And, uh, and we've often poked fun at Jeremy before uh, for being a part of this organization and not uh, going to our sponsor as often as I think they should. And then, lo and behold, last week I walked in and you were right there in front of me.
3: Yeah, and now you know why I don't go as often as maybe some others do. It's because I know how good We Desserts is and how dangerous it is to go in there. Absolutely. I got the three beignets. Uh, three freshly baked, perfectly done beignets covered with, oh, fried, whatever, uh, covered in sugar. And I went in there with the intention of eating one. I started on one and ended up eating all three. So do be careful. Their beignets are delicious. Get them for someone else, not yourself, or you will be like me and be full of beignets for the rest of the day. Get them for yourself. That's terrible advice, Jeremy.
1: Get Get them for yourself too. Buy as many as you can. Buy some for yourself. Buy some for your girlfriend. Buy some for your brother, your mom, Mm -hmm. your dad. Dog. Don't stop at just three
2: yeah and uh, they do uh, occasionally run out of stuff because they're they're uh, an artisanal artisanal how do you say that artisanal yeah, I prefer artisanal because it's got sort of the tease idea in it. Hold on, you're,
1: you're looking at me for pronunciations? Yeah, I shouldn't. <laughs> you can't even pronounce the Houston. city correctly. Houston.
2: <laughs> but, H-Town. Uh, <laughs> the point is, at We Desserts, you can get anything your heart desires. Just ask them. They'll guide you and, and tell you what it is that you really need. They'll work with you, uh, sort of like a personal uh, dessert assistant and help you find the dessert for you. So go by Wee Desserts. Tell them that the guys at the Weekly Brew sent you by. You get 10% off your order, which is an enormous amount. It's way more than
1: 5%. Yeah, absolutely. We've had a lot of guests that have... Uh, we've had a lot of uh, listeners that have gone there in the past. And uh, one thing that we definitely like our listeners to do is to follow us on social media. Again, you can search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, check out our website, weeklybrewcast.com. But the one thing that we always want from our guest is... For them to follow me on Twitter, at K Michael cook. No. The one thing that we always want from our guest is for them to go to iTunes and to tell us what they like, give us show ideas, give us interview ideas... Feedback. We want that. And uh, Kevin, did we have any reviews this week? Well, Austin, it's. Uh, I'm sad to report we did not have
2: any reviews this week. We have 57, which is. You know, I Let me put it this way. I tremendously appreciate the 57 people, including myself, that have left us a review. I've actually left two somehow. Oh, there was a glitch. I've left two. So two of those 57 are mine. But the 55 other people that left reviews, I appreciate tremendously. Those are my favorite listeners so far. They're part of a special cabal uh, or a group of people that I really enjoy. Uh, you can become part of that cabal, part of that group. Uh, all you have to do is go to iTunes. Uh, a lot of you listen on mobile devices. It's very simple. Go to your Purple Podcast app. Uh, go to the right side of it, click the magnifying glass, search for us. You actually have to search for our podcast, find it in the podcast app, and then in the middle tab there, it says review. Leave us a five-star review with a little blurb, and we'll actually read it out to our thousands of listeners uh, on, on the air. I guess you say that, even though it's a podcast, it's not over the airwaves, but we will read it out on the air, and you will be uh, famous, really. And doesn't everybody want to be famous in some sense?
1: I don't know. I'm more of a private person, so. Well, you'll have to review. That's true. So, <laughs> But I didn't get a shout-out by you on, the, you on the podcast. Did you not? No.
2: Were we not doing that then? You're a hypocrite, no. Well, I'm not
1: a hypocrite. It was an oversight. Do you want me to go back and read it now? No. Okay. Definitely not. Well, then why
2: are you complaining at me? I don't know what you want from me, Austin, but what I want from the listeners is to go to iTunes and to leave us a five-star review. It's really helpful. Uh, When people look at us, it looks more impressive. I mean, if you look at a podcast that's got like 200 reviews, you're like, oh, it's better than a podcast with 57 reviews, right? So this is a great podcast. We need to show people how great it is, which means we need the listeners to leave those reviews.
1: Yeah, and actually, uh, this past week we had Gary Patterson on the podcast, and if you haven't listened to the episode yet, I highly recommend you going back and uh, listening to that interview. But if you do an iTunes search, our episode is the most popular Gary Patterson podcast on the iTunes store. That's even more, that's even a higher rated episode than Fox Sports and their Audible podcast. So uh, it's kind of big news for us. And so we want you to go and be a part of that and leave us an iTunes review. Also follow our uh, social media platforms as well. But uh, we had a, a great episode this week. And again, thanks to Nicole Auerbach. Thanks to Jake Kaplan and Steve Karp for joining us. And uh, it's the Olympics. We hope everyone enjoys it. Go Team USA. Or if you're, you know, listening in a different country, good luck to your country, except when they play the USA, uh, especially in basketball, we're, we're just going to own you. So that's just how it works. And on behalf of my co-hosts this week, Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton, I'm Austin Stadden. We'll see you next week. And guys, remember, no matter who you are, where you go, or what
2: you do this week, always, always brew responsibly.
0: You've been listening to the Weekly Brew.